Last season on the Choosing Sides F1 podcast, we established unequivocally that F1 is the pinnacle of motorsports. We did, but honestly, I was left with more questions than answers, Tony. I'm Tony Cameron Brown, a tech, culture, and F1 commentator. And I'm Michael Costa, comedian from The Daily Show. Join us for season two of Choosing Sides F1. Our F1 102, if you will. And get all of the answers. All of them? Listen to Choosing Sides F1 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Davis Miller, host of the new podcast, The Tao of Muhammad Ali. I met Ali in 1988, and surprisingly, we became friends. His influence profoundly changed my perspective on the purpose of life itself. I'll tell you that story, and also stories of others touched by the champ. Listen to The Tao of Muhammad Ali on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Julian Edelman from Games With Names, and we're on a search to find the greatest games of all time with the players and coaches who lived in them. Ever wonder what a locker room feels like at a halftime of a Super Bowl? Or what about the, the after parties? We're going to dive deep into the most iconic games with the most iconic people. New episodes dropping weekly. Listen to Games With Names on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Book of Joe podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome back to the latest episode of the Book of Joe podcast with Tom Verducci and my good buddy Joe Madden. And and Joe, we got a special guest today, and I mean special. We're talking about Evan Carter of the World Series champion, Texas Rangers. How does that sound, Evan? Oh, it's awesome. This has been this has been a ton of fun. Yeah, I got to start with this, Evan. What has the last month or so been like for you? Not just playing in the postseason, but obviously winning the World Series, the parade. I mean, what a whirlwind for you. Uh, just try to describe what the emotions have been like. Yeah, you know, I uh, I feel a little bit spoiled um, just because I kind of, you know, you stepped in at the end of the season and then get to experience something that people don't get to experience for their whole careers. And uh it's been really cool to see, um, have people on the team that have gotten to experience that, but then also have the perspective of, hey, I've played for 10 years and not gotten to be in this spot before. So it's really cool to get to experience that with this group of guys. I mean, that's uh, truer words have never been spoken. <laughs> you know, guys wait forever to get to that juncture. And um, it's, you know, obviously I followed everything and Tommy was with you there uh, on the ground and he spoke so glowingly of you as a person also. But yeah, you handled yourself so extremely well. I could just, uh, you're just dripping with poise and confidence right now as you're speaking to us. And I think that's great. And it's going to benefit you as you move forward. Uh, again, congratulations on uh, a wonderful first uh, salvo into the postseason with many more to come. Oh, thank you. Yeah, just so people kind of get the thumbnail of what, how impressive Evan played throughout the postseason. You know, you think about it just a couple of months before October, Evan, you're playing in El Paso. And I'm not sure what you saw the rest of your season playing out as, but my goodness, you get promoted to AAA. Before you know it, uh, Adolis Garcia goes on the IL, and, and you get the call up to the big leagues. And then before you know it, you're playing in the postseason, started out hitting ninth for Bruce Bochy, wound up hitting third in World Series Game 1. Only Mickey Mantle was younger and it comes to starting the three hole and game one of a world series, just amazing. And a postseason in which you 23 games, you hit over 300 on base over 400 
slugging almost 500, just a remarkable run for you. So I got to ask you, Evan, I mean, you weren't on the radar of a lot of people. When you're playing at El Paso midway through the summer, what is on your radar? What are you looking forward to as far as playing out the year? Yeah, you know, obviously nobody wants to be a career minor leaguer. So when you're in the minor leagues, you're just kind of, you know, you're preparing yourself to be able to get to the big leagues and help them win. So that's the goal. And that's what you're always looking forward to. And, you know, I think once you get to double uh, A AA and triple A, you kind of feel like, you know, you're right there. You're kind of right on the cusp of being able to do that. And so, yeah, whenever I got moved from double A AA to triple A, that was just kind of like one step closer to like your end goal of being able to make it to the big leagues. And then, you know, it was it was crazy this year. I got, you know, you get to debut and then Next thing you know, you're in the playoffs, and then each each series is kind of like you don't really have time to slow down and step back and be like, oh, wow, you know, you're in the big leagues now. Next thing you know, you're in, you know, every game matters, and you're in the World Series. So uh, it was a ton of fun, though. It was it was, it was awesome. Yeah, that's uh, one of the things, like, you, that's what you just said is so true. It's been true for 100 years. Uh, you're in the minor leagues wondering, will I ever get this opportunity? When is that opportunity going to occur? And and you could be in the middle of El Paso this summer. Then at the end of the year, uh, in the parade, it's just a it's the nature of this game. You just can't predict what's going to happen from one year to the next, and that's why it's so important. And I know you hear it all the time, and it seems like you're of that ilk to really um, appreciate the day, seize the day, as they say, and uh, take care of your business today because you just don't know. Uh, but yeah, I think that's spectacular. Uh, just quickly though, El Paso. Did you ever hear the ballpark, the Dudley Dome there? Did anybody ever talk about the old Dudley Dome in, in El Paso? No. That was the original ballpark there, which is right next to the border with Mexico. And they'd have 25-cent beer night. And I've seen some of the best fights of my life <laughs> in the stands at the Dudley Dome. Uh, one even included Chris Bazio throwing at my shortstop where both benches emptied. I had I had a, a shortstop go in the stands after a game. I had uh, – First baseman, go outfielder going with him afterwards. I had to run back out, out of the clubhouse to break the, this fight in the stands on 25-cent beer night at the Dudley Dome. <laughs> when I hear El Paso, I El Paso was like the epicenter of the fun part about minor league baseball, and I loved it there. That's awesome. Evan, you don't have those kind of stories from El Paso? <laughs> no, no. I, I, don't have any, I don't have any wild stories like that. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like it. I think they've tamed down. I think they moved the they moved the ball. <laughs> I gotta tell you, Evan. I, I know you were on the road in Double A, called up to Triple A on the road. I, I went back and looked at this, and I know you probably maybe not aware of the numbers, but all the time you've been in hotels, starting the middle of August for the next ninety three days, you played fifteen home games. I mean, it's just remarkable. And, of course, this Texas team is going to be known all time for going 11-0 and on the road in the postseason, which is crazy. Um, so I we spoke about your whirlwind and how fast things happen, but it's amazing to me how much of it was on the road. So give us an idea of what life is like. Uh, literally, I would imagine living out of your suitcase for that long. From what I understand, you were living at a hotel in across from the ballpark in Arlington. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was definitely, you know, you can't complain about the big league hotels at all. You know, I'm not going to sit here and complain about that. Um, but, you know, my wife and I, we got really good at living out of a suitcase. And like you said, we were living out of a hotel in Arlington, too. So it was no different whenever we got whenever we got home. But I mean, just 
you know, you have your little, I probably had seven outfits or so that seven collared shirts and seven pairs of pants that I was just running through, you know, doing laundry at the field and stuff. But it was, uh, I wouldn't trade it for the world though. I mean, it was a ton of fun. I also heard you were running your laundry over to, to uh, the Jankowski's house. Is that true? Yeah. 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 They were, they were uh, nice enough to let us come over there and do some laundry too. It was, uh, it's crazy. The hotels were charging by the shirt to do laundry. So I wasn't about to do that. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. Just buy a new shirt. It's cheaper, brother. <laughs> yeah, that, seriously. It just about is. Gosh, I mean, think about it now. I guess we really did spend our whole fall kind of living out of a hotel, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. That's amazing. Um, hey, I, I've talked to Joe about this, your approach at the plate. We really need to dive into that. I know, I guess it was in the minor leagues. You got the nickname full count Carter because it seemed like every time you got up there, the count was getting full. Your plate discipline is, is just really amazing for any player of any age, but to see it at someone at 21 to me is remarkable. Uh, I'm wondering, Evan, where that developed. Is is there something that you can do growing up as a hitter to really imprint upon your mind, you know, what the strike zone is, where the boundaries are, or is that something that just came to you naturally? Oh, uh, you know, I think that it came. I, it's never something that I've really worked on, as far as like the way I've always thought about uh, the strike zone is just kind of like I, I want to know what I can hit and what I can't hit. Um, so for me, it's just always been one of those things. If a pitcher makes a good pitch on the edge of the zone, um, what am I really going to be able to do with that the majority of the time anyway? So, um, just being really stubborn and picky to kind of the heart of the zone for me and what I want to be able to hit well. Um, and if a pitcher makes, you know, three really good pitches, good for him, but the chances are that, you know, they will miss in the heart of the zone. And when they do, you know, you can't, you can't miss whenever he does. So, uh, that's just kind of been the way I've always approached it, especially when stuff kind of starts is on the edges. Just, just let it go. Um, he's trying to fool me, so I don't want to. I don't want to, you know, fall for that. I guess those type of things. I was. Uh, Tommy asked the question. I already had that written down. Plate discipline. I mean, okay, you just said is a, a wonderful explanation. But was there anybody that really uh, suggested this to you at a young age, or is this something that you just figured out? I got to do this. If I do this, I'm going to become more popular. As a hitter, I'm going to be a better hitter because they do have a more finite strike zone. Because uh, to me, you just that's such a mature answer. I'm just curious if you had there had to be one mentor I would imagine that helped you organize that thought, or is this all on your own? I, you know, I grew up pitching. Um, I didn't necessarily really grow up hitting, so I okay. mm-hmm. I kind of always that my my mindset kind of comes from the pitching side of things, I guess, more so than the hitting side of things. Okay, I don't necessarily think that I've ever had somebody. As far as just my mindset about that, I, I've had a ton of people in my life help me with my swing and, you know, stuff like that. Um, but as far as like approaching stuff, that's just kind of been how I've always um, approached it, I guess. Well, you know, for me, that's that's something that uh, normally, I mean, I think every organization wants that. They want hitters that normally have really good plate discipline that are willing to accept their walks that are not going to expand their strike zone for me. And you, you're always trying to nurture that among your minor league players. It's hard to do unless you come with it, unless you come equipped with that, unless you purchase that, which they did with you when they saw you. I'm sure the scouting report had something <clears throat> about your ability to uh, organize a strike zone, except the walk, whatever the, um, the, the the method of describing it was. But it is. I mean, it's something I, I was a hitting coach with the Angels for many years in the minor leagues, and I was always about that. I was always about attempting to balance walks to strikeouts. Whatever the number of times you struck out, 
I'd like to see it walk a similar number of times. Now, of course, a power hitter, a really legit guy, I could I could take more strikeouts uh, over walks, no question. But a uh, less than power hitter, a guy that needs to move the ball, gap hitter, kind of like yourself, I always wanted the numbers to be balanced. And I thought if they were, then you're going to see this the, the, the greatest potential of this particular player. This is what he's capable of doing. This is the batting average he should have pretty much annually. This is the on-base percentage he should pretty much have annually. Long, long, not even a question, but I respect all that. If I looked at your numbers before we did this, and the fact that you've uh, created these own thoughts just from pitching, pretty impressive. But beyond that, man, what you do is sought after, sought after by many organizations, almost all, and was something that was really big in the American League East when I managed uh, in Tampa. You had to get hitters out in the strike zone. Pitchers have to get you out in the strike zone. And that makes it very difficult to get you out. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. I mean, you know, I uh, I definitely think that on-base percentage is something that I've always kind of, if I had a goal or something that I wanted to strive for as a hitter, on-base percentage would be something that I would put up there just as far as like, I want to feel like I see a lot of pitches. I want to feel like I get on base more so, uh, more often than more, most people. And then I also want to feel like once I get on base that I can, you know, turn a walk into a double or, you know, with a stolen base or make the pitcher in the back of his head, you know, Hey, now the guy coming up behind me, you know, is going to maybe see some better pitches because the pitcher on the mound's thinking about a base runner on base, you know, and it's just kind of in the back of his head. So always trying to, uh, I guess, get on base and cause a little bit of, uh, a little bit of hecticness for the pitcher, I guess. I'll, just, I'll leave it alone. But I mean, like drill, do you do when you take batting practice, do you refuse to swing at certain pitches? Yeah. I think that um, in batting practice, you know, it can, that's a great way to practice it is just, you know, be stubborn to, I'm not just going to be swinging at everything, you yeah. know, Hey, if it's not a pitch that I can drive in the game, I'm not going to try and swing at it in batting practice and just be swinging at everything, you know, have, have some intent behind your uh, practice as well, for sure. I used to throw a lot of BP for the angels in the um, early eighties uh, in, in major league camp. And Rod crew was on among that group. And I'm, I could just see it in my mind's eye right now, throwing a BP and you're throwing, you know, you got to throw a lot of strikes or these guys hate you. So, but he would take one pitch, uh, kind of like belt high, a little bit more than belt high. And I thought it was a strike on the outside edge, but it was there and he took it every time. And I, that, that always impressed me with Rodney throwing to him is that he was so structured and this, you know, you're kind of describing him as you're describing yourself. He was so disciplined and he would he would be very big on that too, as he was the hitting coach there eventually too. But to really um, maintain your strike zone even during batting practice and not just go up there haphazardly swinging at everything. So I guess I'm comparing you to Rodney a little bit based on what you're describing to me, because that's how he would approach his batting practices. And I, again, it was amazing. Same pitch, never swung at it. That's awesome. Well, Joe, as long as we're talking about comps, you know, as I'm watching Evan throughout the postseason. The guy who came to my mind, and Evan, this is going back before your time, I know, but Don Mattingly, I mean, I just saw the body type very similar, command of the strike zone, more power than what you would think as someone steps in the box. You know, Evan's not an imposing guy in terms of weight or, or muscular muscularity, but Donnie Mattingly was the same way. And um, listen, that you're talking about a former MVP, 
a guy who won batting titles, you know, before he hurt his back, one of the best hitters, young hitters I ever saw. And I know that Don Mattingly went to winter ball one year after his a brief cameo in the big leagues, Evan, and he specifically went there to see more left-handed pitching. And I know next year I expect, expect that Bruce Bochy will allow you to get more run against left-handed pitching. We started to see that as the postseason went on, but not sure if you know or heard anything about Don Mattingly, Evan, but, um, you know, this game, we'd love to do our comps. That stuck out for me, and I'm just wondering for you if there were any swings that you watched either growing up, uh, transitioning from pitching to hitting, or even now in the big leagues, left-handed hitters, that you like to watch. Yeah, I think that um, I think that growing up for me, somebody that I always watched and kind of wanted to be – kind of like would be Christian Yelich for me. Um, I loved his swing in high school and in middle school. Gosh, I, I just loved watching him hit. Um, still do. And, you know, I, that's somebody that I would probably kind of say that I tried to emulate a little bit. That's a great comp. Yeah, they're talking about the power Tommy too. And again, I'm looking at his numbers. Um, that's going to come. You're going to hit for more power consistently as you get older, I believe. I th- the fact that you get the ball in the gaps at a young age is most exciting to me. Um, I had Garrett Anderson, I had Jimmy Edmonds at very young age, and they were like that. They didn't hit for power necessarily young, but they were always in a gap. And when they came up to the big leagues, all of a sudden the home runs runs started to become more plentiful because what you do is you understand what you're doing. And and like you alluded to earlier, you get into that good count and you see your pitch, you don't take it, you don't foul it off. You hit it hard and you keep it fair. And when you get to that point, maturity-wise as a hitter, I think that's where the power comes. You're going to get bigger and stronger too. If you saw pictures of GA when he was a baby compared to what he was like when he was 27, 28 years of age, completely different body. So um, again, I, I'm totally confident. I don't even know if it's important to you or not, but I believe as you go through this thing and as you understand this even more, the power is going to show up. Well, Evan was a guy, I think for a lot of people, Joe um, first heard about him in the postseason with obviously the national exposure. But if you go back to high school, you wonder where were all the scouts? Baseball America would pick the top 500 prospects in the country. And Evan Carter was not on that list. I want to ask him about that, what the scouts missed, right after we take a quick break. Last season on the Choosing Sides F1 podcast, we established unequivocally that F1 is the pinnacle of motorsports. Lily Herman, my co-host in season one, helped me choose a team, a driver, and then... Well, we sent you on your jolly way. Yeah. I'm Tony Cameron Brown, a tech, culture, and F1 commentator. I'm Michael Costa, comedian, Daily Show correspondent. And we're back with season two because, as it turns out, F1's newest fan is still a little... Dazed and confused. Join us for season two of Choosing Sides F1 as we dive deeper into the rabbit hole of the pinnacle of motorsports. Who makes money here? What's CFD? How do you manage a tire? You, get back in there. What are the rumors? What's the gossip? But you also know that someone's listening to your radio. Uh, I'm going to pull up a picture of a tea cozy. I want to see what this thing looks like. Are you going to be doing that accent this whole pod? Listen to season two of Choosing Sides F1 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts. Or wherever you get your podcasts. You find it. I'm Julian Edelman from Games With Names, and we're on a search to find the greatest games of all time. 
I'm talking Hall of Famers, MVPs, gold medalists. I absolutely hate the Colts, bro. This game, I swear, led to the deflate gate. Hey guys, this ball's a little flat. <laughs> Ever wonder what a locker room feels like at a halftime of a Super Bowl? Julian walking around, I'm pretty sure he had his shirt off for reasons I'm not sure. He was saying, gotta believe. Oh, you gotta believe. From 18-1 with Eli. You call him Bill just a cheater? Is that what you're I'm saying right saying now? He's, you... he's looking for an advantage. The 2004 ALCS with Big Poppy. The Red Sox in 2004 bounced back after the 3-0. In a winner chicken dinner, homie. The immaculate reception with Terry Bradshaw. Fired the ball. I hear the roar of the crowd. I never thought he caught the ball, but he did. We're going to dive deep into the most iconic games with the most iconic people. New episodes dropping weekly. Listen to Games with Names on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Davis Miller, host of the new podcast, the Tao of Muhammad Ali. I met Ali back in 1988, and to my great surprise, we became friends. His influence profoundly changed my perspective on family, spirituality, and on the purpose of life itself. I'll tell you that story and also stories of others touched by the champ, including people such as Reverend Al Sharpton and James Buster Douglas, We'll even hear from Muhammad's daughter, Rashida. Well, my dad was, he was Peter Pan. Like, he never really grew up. He was very mature when it came down to social issues. He was very in tune. He felt a responsibility to be able to share his connection to millions of people who were in need. In each of these stories, we share lessons, lessons that have meant a great deal to me and that I hope will be meaningful to you. Listen to The Tao of Muhammad Ali on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. All right, Evan, I mentioned that back in high school, you weren't exactly a known quantity among the scouting circle. Of course, it was the COVID year, and I, I think you played only about three games before your high school season was canceled in Tennessee. Um, but from what I understand, you also were not one of these guys out on the showcase circuit where a lot of these names uh, bubble up to the surface and become well-known to scouts. Uh, so tell me about your approach and whether you were playing travel ball and doing the whole perfect game and showcase circuit thing. Yeah, um, I... I did play travel ball. I was never on a uh, big team, I would say. Um, I didn't pay a lot of money to go down to Florida or Georgia or stuff like that to be on these big teams and play, you know, the entire summer and fall. I never really did any of the uh, showcases or anything like that. I just kind of, I just played games. That's all I did. And I would also say, too, that I was probably a little bit more of a late bloomer. I was kind of a baby, baby giraffe in high school, just really tall, really fast, and then Hadn't really grown into myself, I guess. But uh, I, I would say probably my junior year of high school was whenever I started to get a little bit more serious about baseball. That was the first time that I played uh, fall ball and uh, tried to, you know, get on a little bit maybe better teams and kind of get in front of some more people. And just, you know, it was it worked out the way it was supposed to. You know, we this was mine and my parents, obviously our first experience with kind of the whole how do we get in front of who we're supposed to. And uh, we ended up we ended up being able to do that. That's refreshing. I love hearing that, man. Um, you did. I mean, for me, you did it absolutely correctly um, to pay large sums of money to go and travel ball. And 
I guess some guys do increase their uh, uh, market in a sense. But if you're good, you're going to be you're going to be found. You're good. You were really good, and that you were found. I love what you did. I love what you. I just played games. I just played baseball. Uh, man, I wish more would adopt that that method right there. I think it's great. Uh, too many times, I I can't. Bothers me that parents spend all this money for special lessons and sending kids to different states, and they don't even represent their cities anymore. Whether it's little league, American Legion ball, whatever it might be, good a good old fashioned summer league team. And I'm I'm not trying to date myself. I just think there's there's a lot to be gained from that. And so, listen, I really respect and appreciate what you did. I think it's great. Thank you. So, Evan, you got to tell the story then of how the Texas Rangers did find you in a COVID year, in a shortened draft, and what happened on draft day. Yeah. So, uh, the like I said, my junior year, that was the first time that I'd really played fall ball. I, did the, uh, I went down to Jupiter, Florida, and played in a tournament there and ended up, I guess, getting there were some scouts there that ended up uh built I built a relationship with them there and then um there was a small I guess camp that the Rangers actually organized themselves at a uh, hitting facility so it was just kind of hey we're gonna have a bunch of their scouts and a bunch of people kind of in the area at the same time let's have some guys come in and just you know, take BP hit work out whatever so I ended up getting invited to that through the relationship that I had built um, so I went and did that. And uh, that's kind of the first time I got around, you know, the uh, scouting directors and a little bit more of the front office people. But then obviously we got shut down for COVID. Uh, so that was kind of, you know, hey, I don't know what's going to happen after this. Like, you know, you can't talk to anybody in person anymore. Your relationships are just kind of cut off. You don't get to, you know, I played, I don't remember how many, either one or two high school games and it was just over. Like, you know, hey, we'll be back in two weeks. And then next thing you know, they're like, actually, school year shut down, everything's done. Like we're not coming back. It was a crazy time, but the, the draft ended up eventually showing up and we had no idea what to expect just because, I mean, there's like, it was just so, I don't know. We didn't have any, a whole senior season was completely cut out. So, you know, we had talked to some people and kind of had an idea, Hey, this might happen, but you know, you can't, you can't count on that until, you know, you get the phone call and then we end up I was fortunate enough to get the phone call that uh, they were going to be picking me. So uh, that was kind of the uh, dramatic, I guess, mysterious circumstances that I got to go through there. It was a lot of fun, though. Evan, did you have um, colleges offering you scholarships? Uh, What was the decision like to sign with Texas? Yeah, so I um, actually I was committed to go to Duke University. Um, school was kind of first on my radar. That's what was important to me at the time. I was kind of using baseball as a means to get an education. Um, so that was what was really important to me. Pro ball wasn't really on my mind until you know until it was a possibility. You know, late in my high school career. But they Duke was actually the only school that offered me. Um, they were the first and only school to give, offer me a scholarship, so that's where I committed. Uh, that's where I had signed to go play baseball. But I, uh, when the Rangers called and uh, we kind of discussed with them, school will always be there. The opportunity to play pro ball will not always be there. So that was kind of my mindset going forward as if, you know, pro ball ended up not working out, uh, I would be able to go back to school and, you know, have the opportunity to do that. Just a quick question. Do they cover school? Is that part of the contract these days? Because we had – a college scholarship plan when I was scouting. So you could get to go to Duke or any school if, in fact, you, you're done playing. How does that work? So they um, they cover however much 
four years of tuition at the school that you were, that you had signed your letter of intent to go to. That's how much they cover for your, for your college. Got it. It's pretty amazing. You think about it and how quickly Evan you developed, because um, I think that first year when you did play pro ball in 2021, uh, you had a back injury struggled, you know, to get on the field as much as you wanted, I'm sure. Um, talk about the adjustment when you got in a pro ball. I know the batting average wasn't what you would love, but the on-base percentage was still high. What did you find to be the biggest adjustment, especially after losing your high school season in 20 to, to pro ball in 21? Yeah, I think the, uh, the biggest adjustment for me was just I had never played that much baseball before. I mean, you know, you play a couple games a week in high school, but it's, you know, seven innings of baseball. It's not nine innings. You know, those extra two innings are a big deal. And then all of a sudden you're playing every single day of the week. It was just, you know, obviously you're away from home, but I would just, I would say that playing that much baseball was the biggest adjustment for me. And then not only are you playing that much baseball, but it's also against the best competition for your age that you can find anywhere. So it's mentally and physically just a lot more taxing than anything that I'd ever experienced before. And I didn't necessarily know how to deal with that at the time. But that's what the minor leagues are for, you know, is figuring out how to deal with that and how to manage yourself uh, physically and mentally and how to be able to show up every single day and compete to the best of your ability. And that's, you know, that was my first experience with learning how to do that. And then, uh, you know, got to take my experiences from that, even though they were shortened and learn from it and uh, make a plan and figure out how I was going to be better at that and, you know, kind of apply that going forward. And Evan, I'm sure there was another adjustment to Major League Baseball. Were there certain guys in the team that were, I'm sure everybody in that clubhouse, and it is a a fantastic clubhouse, that group of guys there, uh, anybody that you especially connected with in in terms of just telling you what Major League Baseball is about? As far as on the the big league team? Yeah, on the big league team, because I know, you know, it's it's a little bit different than minor leagues in, in terms of just your work day and preparation and information and all that. Yeah, you know, I think that uh, I think what makes or what made our team special this year was just the amount of people that whenever I did first get there, it wasn't just one guy that kind of like took me under his wing and was like, hey, this is what it's all about. Like it was the whole team. You know, there was a bunch of guys on there that took me under that were like, hey, this is this is what it's all about. Everybody had their own unique perspective. You know, you've got people that are you got the Max Scherzers who are 18 years older than me. And then you got people that are kind of similar to my age that this is their first year too. So it was uh it was a really, really cool experience that I got to learn from um, just with so many different perspectives. And, you know, nobody was uh, there wasn't a bad personality on the team. You know, I felt like I could talk to anybody and they talked to me. So, but if I had to name one person, I think Brad Miller would definitely be the person that I would throw out there that was, that was definitely above and beyond as far as showing me the ropes. And I should have asked you this, but when you did come up to the big leagues, your first game single and your first at bat, I think um, you also had a stolen base and assist from the outfield. Walk me through that first game and what you felt just being there, putting the uniform on and then what it was like for that first at bat first hit. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, Gosh, I think I was more nervous for my debut game than I was game one of the World Series. It's all the emotions at once. You know, it's so much It's so much fun. I mean, you get to go out there and this is what you've dreamed of and worked for your entire life. You know, it's just this is it's kind of all built up to that one moment. And, uh, you know, whether it goes good or it goes bad, you want to 
remember it, that you had fun and that you went out there and you just, you know, soak it in. And, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to remember it as a negative moment by any means. So it was, uh, you know, you're going to go out there and try and help the team win, but you know, selfishly you want to soak it all in and just, uh, enjoy that moment for sure. I just want to, <laughs> I'm listening to you, man. I'm listening to you intently. And my, my, my thought is that when this, when we're done with this podcast today, we should send you a copy so that the Rangers can play this back for all their minor league players and how to do this thing properly. Listen, I don't know you. I'm just meeting you for the very first time, but I can't tell you how um, exactly uh, everything you're talking about. I would agree with uh, how you've done it, your full personal philosophy, your work ethic, uh, how you approach that day. The fact that you wanted to enjoy this, this really special moment yeah, you got to be nervous as heck, your first major league moment at bat, but then here come the World Series, and you treated it almost like a regular game, which is why you were so successful. But yeah, man, uh, just uh, might be jumping a gunner, but just stay stay on the path that you're on. This is really interesting for me to listen to, and I think this is something that uh, a lot more young players, not only professionally, but guys coming up through the amateur ranks trying to become a professional. What you're describing and how you're describing it to me is right on the money. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, you you think about what Evan did in the postseason especially. And first of all, the regular season was fantastic. In 23 games, the number is very similar to the first 23 games of Juan Soto. It's that kind of combination of power and walks on base percentage. But in the postseason, you know, at the age of 21 – with 30 total bases, there's only been two other players who have done that that young in the postseason, Juan Soto being one of those in, 20, uh, in 2019, and Miguel Cabrera going back to 2003. I mean, a pretty darn good company. So you've got a ring, Evan. Um, you've got this World Series experience. You, you've got your foothold established in the big leagues. I got to ask you, um, what's your offseason going to be like? Because I know you're a guy that's always striving to be better, certainly not satisfied with where you're at right now, always moving forward. So give me an idea of what your offseason is going to be like, what you want to accomplish, what your training's like. What's ahead for Evan Carter? I think as far as the offseason goes, obviously it got cut short by quite a bit with the postseason, but that's that's a really, really good problem to have. But it's uh right now I'm just kinda taking it taking it easy. I'm taking a break for a couple of weeks. Um I'll I'll start getting back in the weight room, uh just moving the body around and uh trying to eat a whole lot and gain the weight back that I've lost from this season. Uh just trying to get back in uh a little bit heavier like I was to start the season last year. And then probably middle of December, I'll start swinging the bat again. Um, I don't have any huge mechanical changes that I want to work on or change this off season. I just kind of want to get in there, uh, work on some certain pitch shapes, uh, attacking those. I definitely want to work on, you know, left-handed shapes and things like that. And just, I really, really want to get more consistent with what I've already got. I just kind of, I know that was one of the biggest things for me was not necessarily changing anything, but just, hey, with what I have, how can I be way more consistent with my load and my, you know, kind of how I approach my bat? Um, so that's that's some of the things that I want to work on. Uh, I'm very loose when it comes to the off season. I don't, I'm not somebody that's going to be like, I've got to do this, 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 and this to get everything, you know, the way I want it to do. It just kind of... Uh, kind of always is going to work out the way that it's supposed to is the way I approach it. 
That's interesting you mentioned your weight, Evan, because you're listed at 190. What's your preferred weight and how much weight did you lose by the time you got to the World Series? How much did you weigh? Yeah, so I, gosh, 190. I wish I weighed 190 still. (laughs) Um, Right now, honestly, I probably weigh about 180 pounds. Um, And for me, though, weight has been one of those tricky things that it's like everybody around me uh, outside of the organization says, oh, I can't wait for you to gain weight so you can get stronger and hit the ball harder. For me, I I don't necessarily think weight has as much. Obviously, it would make me, you know, I would like to weigh more. But at the end of the day, if I don't, I just need to rotate faster to hit the ball harder. So I can get stronger without, you know, weighing 220 pounds. Um, but for me, I, I think weight gain is going to help me feel better throughout the, the entirety of the season. Obviously, I don't want to weigh 175 pounds because – 160 games throughout an entire season is going to weigh even more on you than it would be if I had a little bit of a cushion, I guess. Um, so yeah, that that's kind of the big thing for me is just to have a little bit of wiggle room and cushion to uh, help the body feel better at the end of the year. I think I know the answer to this already, but just curiously, just based on everything you've been talking about, will you at some point this winter already, have you already done it, like sit down and try to establish some specific goals for yourself? For next season, or is that one another thing that you just like to almost organically uh, uh, permit to happen? I don't necessarily like to set a certain goal of like, all right, this is what I want to happen. Because if if that doesn't happen, I mean, baseball is such a hard sport; it, it's hard to set goals and be like, well, if I don't reach that goal, then what? Um, so for me, it's just something that's like, all right, I want to put an emphasis on this to be better at this and whatever happens from that is going to happen. You know, if, if it's for me, all right, I, I want to be better at hitting left-handed pitching. Okay. I'm not going to set a goal for what that's going to look like, but I know that I'm going to put the effort forward to be better at that. So that's just, that's kind of how I organize myself for things. Well, Joe, I think you can see why this guy is so impressive. I mean, if you just didn't look at the back of his baseball card you'd think he'd have five six years already into the big leagues just a mature approach at the plate and obviously off the field as well um i I know obviously your family too evan is a is a big part of your success um and your wife uh, traveling around i'm sure throughout this last couple of months so um how important has family been for you yeah i mean i gosh i wouldn't be at the position i'm at without the support of my wife i mean how much she did for me making my life so much easier on the road and at home either one i mean it's just it's it's so vital for me to have something to come home to at the end of the day and just get my mind off of baseball um and for her to be able to provide that for me uh it was it was invaluable that's so impressive so happy to hear uh all about your success, Evan. Your story is really amazing. I think it proves that, like Joe said, if you got the talent, baseball will find you. And uh, I'm sure there's better things even ahead for you after what's been just an amazing year. I'm sure you're able to soak it up, or hopefully you are now looking back on it. Um, Just an amazing year, and we really look forward to even better things in the future for you. So thanks so much for joining us. Really love this chat. Thank you. I appreciate you all. This This was a ton of fun. Yeah, just uh, again, uh, really congratulations on your season. Happy holidays. Enjoy Europe. Um, I love your perspective, man. Just stay right there. It's going to serve you well for many years to come. Thank you. That means a lot. We'll have some closing thoughts right after this. 
Last season on the Choosing Sides F1 podcast, we established unequivocally that F1 is the pinnacle of motorsports. Lily Herman, my co-host in season one, helped me choose a team, a driver, and then... Well, we sent you on your jolly way. Yeah. I'm Tony Cameron Brown, a tech, culture, and F1 commentator. I'm Michael Costa, comedian, Daily Show correspondent. And we're back with season two, because as it turns out, F1's newest fan is still a little... Dazed and confused. Join us for season two of Choosing Sides F1 as we dive deeper into the rabbit hole of the pinnacle of motorsports. Who makes money here? What's CFD? How do you manage a tire? You, get back in there. What are the rumors? What's the gossip? But you also know that someone's listening to your radio. Uh, I'm going to pull up a picture of a tea cozy. I, I want to see what this thing looks like. Are you going to be doing that accent this whole pod? Listen to season two of Choosing Sides F1 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. You find it. I'm Davis Miller, host of the new podcast, The Tao of Muhammad Ali. I met Ali back in 1988, and to my great surprise, we became friends. His influence profoundly changed my perspective on family, spirituality, and on the purpose of life itself. I'll tell you that story and also stories of others touched by the champ, including people such as Reverend Al Sharpton and James Buster Douglas. We'll even hear from Muhammad's daughter, Rashida. Well, my dad was, he was Peter Pan. Like, he never really grew up. He was very mature when it came down to social issues. He was very in tune. He felt a responsibility to be able to share his connection to millions of people who were in need. In each of these stories, we share lessons, lessons that have meant a great deal to me and that I hope will be meaningful to you. Listen to The Tao of Muhammad Ali on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Julian Edelman from Games with Names, and we're on a search to find the greatest games of all time. I'm talking Hall of Famers, MVPs, gold medalists. I absolutely hate the Colts, bro. This game, I swear, led to the Deflategate. Hey guys, this ball's a little flat. <laughs> Ever wonder what a locker room feels like at a halftime of a Super Bowl? Julian walking around, I'm pretty sure he had his shirt off for reasons I'm not sure. He was saying, gotta believe. Oh, you gotta believe. From 18-1 with Eli. Are you calling Bill just a cheater? Is that what you're I'm saying right saying now? He's, you... he's looking for an advantage. The 2004 ALCS with Big Pop the Red Sox in 2004 bounced back after the 3-0. We never win a chicken dinner, homie. The immaculate reception with Terry Bradshaw. Fired the ball. I hear the roar of the crowd. I never thought he caught the ball, but he did. We're going to dive deep into the most iconic games with the most iconic people. New episodes dropping weekly. Listen to Games with Names on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, Joe, hopefully you and I and anybody listening to this podcast understands even more about why Evan Carter is so special. I mean, it was just watching him play in the postseason. You had to keep reminding yourself this kid's only 21 years old. Uh, but now to listen to him and to think about his process and his story of how he got there in the first place, I, I'm even more blown away. And I'm reminded there was an old scout. I don't know, you probably knew him, Joe. Buddy Kerr. And he talked about John Olerud in a very young point in John's career where he called him a repeater. 
And what he meant by that was Olerud had such a balanced approach, such a sweet swing at the plate, and such kind of an easygoing disposition that there weren't going to be ups and downs to his career. And listening to Evan, that's who I thought about was John Olerud. And Evan Carter, to me, looks like a repeater. He's a guy, if you're the Texas Rangers, you do not worry about. You don't worry about success going to his head. You don't worry about him, whether he's going to hit for power. Uh, You don't worry about him being ready to play on a night-in, night-out basis. That, and I know you know this, Joe, that is a manager's dream. And again, at 21 years old, amazing. What a great description. The repeater uh, makes all the sense in the world. We were just talking a little bit before we got back on, but I, you know, you oftentimes compare you, I meet this 21-year-old today for the very first time, World Series kind of hero, um, came up uh, meteoric rise to get to the big leagues. And I think to myself, man, I just the conversation he just had with us, that wasn't even in my near my playbook at that particular juncture in my life. It's so impressive to just hear him put a sentence together, uh, explain, like you said, his process, uh, what's in store, how he's going to go about his business, uh, what it means uh, regarding his family and, and what his wife had done. Everything, everything he talked about, um, right down to his plate discipline. And he describes that as like, as a pitcher, I, I recognized that it's important to have. So I go out there and I create plate discipline for myself as a hitter. Uh, the Rangers have something special here, man. Uh, there's no question. They know that. But I, I think we mentioned it in the podcast. I <laughs> I would have this guy talk to my minor league players at some point. Maybe you don't want to put too much on him too soon going back to camp this year. However, I think he can handle almost anything when it comes to uh, being out front, being a lead singer, whatever. He's, he does it in a very... Uh, poison balanced way but uh that is the rangers having him um at such a young age uh, they got to feel wonderful about all of this moving forward like you said he's not going to change if anything's going to get better uh he's not going to fall backward uh as a person i don't think ever so there's there's a lot to bet on right there and i was I'm, I'm, I was over the top impressed. Yeah, I was even impressed when he talked about uh, his weight, Joe, because yeah. I, I think there is, you know, almost a type of peer pressure in the game to continue to get big. And I think most fans would be amazed if they see these players up close, how big they actually are. Um, but sort of like the guy he mentioned, Christian Yelich, I think he's got a great baseball body that does not need to get bigger. Uh, now, 175 is probably too thin right? Just to hold up to the rigors of a season, but he should not feel like he needs to add muscles just for the sake of being bigger. I I think that's not his game. Listen, you're talking about a guy last year in 23 games. I know it's a small sample, uh, but he slugged 645. I've seen him absolutely destroy pitches. I mean, this guy on fastballs is just lights out. Um, I mentioned he does have to work on hitting against left-handed pitching just because he hasn't seen much of it yet. But I, I don't want to see him get bigger, to be honest with you. I, I think where he's at right now, it, it's a great baseball body. He's extremely fast. I mentioned Don Mattingly. Just think if Don Mattingly had plus wheels. That That's Evan Carter to me. Uh, so even that was a mature approach or, or at least a perspective that he gave us in terms of his weight. Here's where my, I mean, for me, my scouting background helps because I did scout. I did scout in 1981, and then I would go ahead and manage rookie ball. Then I eventually go ahead, I went ahead and managed uh, 
ball, et cetera. But you see these guys that come in at 18, 19, 20 years of age, great athletes, really thin, uh, lacked uh, strength or muscle, whatever you want to call it. But over just the next couple of years, uh, I'm not talking about eating a lot. We didn't have the weight training program or the uh, the methods uh, at our disposal then as we do now. And eventually they they became bigger, stronger dudes without a whole lot of effort. I just, it's a natural progression. And uh, the way he described it, I get that. He doesn't want to overly emphasize that because he's just going to create more torquey sitters or bat speed. And I get that. But I, I, I from my own eyes, um, almost every player that I had that turned into really good major league baseball players started out somewhat thin. Uh, as I mean, I saw Jose Canseco in Medford, Oregon, when he was, well, I don't know, right out of Miami, whatever it was. The guy was real thin. I saw Mark McGuire. And I know I'm talking about two guys from the steroid era. I get that. But I saw Mark McGuire at um, Geonautry Park uh, when he was just right out of USC. And my God, he was thin. But then all of a sudden, he did get bigger. I get that. But overall, I, there's a lot of guys that I had had that naturally just got to that moment. So he's going he's gonna to get bigger. He's going to get stronger. And like I said, the fact that he's a gap guy and he goes the other guy, he knows the uh, oppo gap to me, that is so attractive in regarding regarding de- developing power as he moves forward. And then with that's going to come more runs and RBIs, et cetera. He's, he's got it right. He's just going to go and he's going to, the, the goals are going to be just to, to do the right thing and set up the right process. And eventually the result's going to be exactly what he's looking for. And I love that. Yeah, and and speaking of, you know, kind of putting on your scouts hat, Joe, I'm curious your take on this. When you see a young player like this who does have an extraordinary command of the strike zone, not just good, it's extraordinary, um, that guy's going to be a star. I don't know about you, but I think there's only so far you can go with hitters in terms of plate discipline. Can it be improved? Absolutely. Um, can you go from a guy who chases wildly to a guy who's an Evan Carter? No, I, I don't think that can happen. I think it's sort of like change-ups with pitchers. You have a feel for it or you don't. There's only incremental movements that you can make. So I feel that way about plate discipline. Um, it's sort of like the idol uh, of a car engine. It is what it is. And maybe you can tweak it a little bit. Um, but you're not going to take a guy who's undisciplined and turn him into Evan Carter. And I think when you have an Evan Carter, he's not going to regress into a guy who's going to swing wildly. So I think when we see this base of plate discipline at 21, uh, my goodness, that this guy is going to put up just amazing numbers. I'm talking about on-base percentage and batting average. Tommy, that's a, I think that's a great evaluation, and I cannot agree with you more. Um, if the organization wants that, you got to purchase that normally, whether it's out of the draft, a high school kid, college kid, or just by uh, free agent signing or somebody from another organization. Once you've identified somebody like that and that's what you want, you got to go get it. Go get it. Bring that into the organization because you're right. Um, and I've gone through this. I've gone through this as a hitting coach. One of my biggest things was uh, in order, it was the attempt to, like I said earlier, increase walks and, and um, uh, diminish the strikeout. So I had something called the B-hack, my two-strike approach, all this stuff. The thing that I found as a hitting coach, it is somewhat easier, I think, to give a hitter tools to not strike out than it is to give him tools to accept the walk. That was my, that was my opinion. Uh, there's just different things. Like, again, you could, it's a mental adaptation to cut down on your swing, maybe choke up, maybe look away first. These are things that they can do without really 
uh, trying to change their DNA as a hitter. But to get them to actually walk more, wow, uh, their proclivity is to swing. I'm a sw- I'm going to swing, man. I want to swing. Go ahead. And so you, if you could get them just to maybe be a little bit more disciplined with the two strike, a, a big count is the full count. The full count's a big count where guys just want to swing. You might have to have these kind of conversations. And what I would do, I would take them out to the cage and set up a pitching machine, more than likely a breaking ball, that would start out as a strike and become a ball. And I would literally practice taking pitches and not swinging at them. I want you to watch where this pitch begins, how it concludes, go through your whole process, shut it down, accept the ball, accept your walk. Harder to do. So you're right on the money. Um, I, I love it. And, and, and if I have a bunch of dudes that make pitchers pitch and throw and force them, like I said, to get you out in the strike zone, wow. That's what that's that's how a good offensive team is created. Well, think about this too, Joe. I think this is just the opening of a window for the Texas Rangers. Mm-hmm. Evan Carter is still qualified as a rookie next year. Uh, they also have Wyatt Langford, a prospect you're going to see, an outfielder um, going to see next year. Both those guys are going to be rated, if they're not already, in the top five prospects for Major League Baseball in 2024. You still have Leody Tavares in center field, who I, I think just has a, a ton of talent. He's still young and is just scratching the surface. And, of course, you've got Adolis Garcia. I mean, they're just loaded in the outfield. They're loaded across the diamond. Uh, we know that they're going to spend money. I, I look at the Texas Rangers, and Evan Carter is certainly a big part of this, Joe, that this window is just only opening. This was not a one-off World Series fluke, folks. Um, this is looking like the team that is going to take the mantle from the Houston Astros as the team to beat in the American League West. Yeah, all great points again. I listen, I'm a fan. Um, this this Evan uh, absolutely convinced me even before you got on the the uh, podcast. I was just talking to him back and forth uh, briefly. Just uh, this incredible poise about him, incredible uh, ability to process the moment. What, what's important to me. And this is what I'm. This is what I'm going after. I'm not just going to be worried about all this superfluous nonsense. I'm very focused in both on the field and off the field. Wow. Um, again, if I'm uh, CY Chris Younger, Boach, or those dudes, my goodness, uh, to know that this young man's going to influence other young men walking in the door, I feel pretty pretty darn good about that. Yep, they've got a good thing going and a good one in Evan Carter. Um, Joe, for us. Um, as I do every time we meet, I ask you to mm-hmm. to take care of the final inning here. Give us a closing statement here and uh, your choice. Yeah, and again, it's just it just happened again. Um, went into psycho cybernetics a little bit today, and <laughs> you know, it's like that's almost like a it's kind of a uh, positive thinking and a peace of mind kind of a thing. Uh, but this is a, this is like dovetails into what I just heard with Evan. A man maintains his balance, poise, and sense of security. Only as he's moving forward. Wow, um, it's true. And and this kid here is all about balance. He's all about poise. He's all about a sense of security, man. And he's going to continue to move forward. There's no doubt. I was, yeah, a big fan, big fan already. And um, like I said, he's going to be there to nurture their young players in the future. Good for the Rangers. Boy, that was very fitting because that is literally and figuratively who Evan Carter yeah. is. It's all about the balance. I'm always, I'm always curious. Like I write this stuff down before we start. People almost think like you know you you tip me off. I had no clue. This is this is inc- an incredible fit. 
That was a lot of fun. Really enjoyed it, Joe. We'll see you next time. Same here, Tommy. Thanks, buddy. The Book of Joe podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Last season on the Choosing Sides F1 podcast, we established unequivocally that F1 is the pinnacle of motorsports. We did, but honestly, I was left with more questions than answers, Tony. I'm Tony Cameron Brown, a tech, culture, and F1 commentator. And I'm Michael Costa, comedian from The Daily Show. Join us for season two of Choosing Sides F1. Our F1 102, if you will. And get all of the answers. All of them? Listen to Choosing Sides F1 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Davis Miller, host of the new podcast, The Tao of Muhammad Ali. I met Ali in 1988, and surprisingly, we became friends. His influence profoundly changed my perspective on the purpose of life itself. I'll tell you that story and also stories of others touched by the champ. Listen to The Tao of Muhammad Ali on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Julian Edelman from Games With Names, and we're on a search to find the greatest games of all time with the players and coaches who lived in them. Ever wonder what a locker room feels like at a halftime of a Super Bowl? Or what about the the after parties? We're going to dive deep into the most iconic games with the most iconic people. New episodes dropping weekly. Listen to Games With Names on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.